0: You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky, a congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ Tradition. We are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice. But from time to time, you'll find guest preachers on this podcast, too. Thanks for listening. We have to remember that the Apostle Paul is doing his best in difficult circumstances. In our reading today, the poor apostle struggles to guide a fledgling church through a rough patch. He's writing from Ephesus around the year, fall of 53, early 54, the common era. And perhaps he's already written one letter to the folks in Corinth trying to straighten things out. And then he's received a letter back from this new church. This church made up mostly of Gentiles. It's just about three years after its founding. And remember that Paul has had conversations also with the bearers of this letter, and he's had reports from folks he calls Chloe's people. Paul knows this church well. It's a church he founded along with his co-missionaries Silas and Timothy, and it was in Corinth you may remember that he met up with Priscilla and Aquila from Rome. And Paul spent Over a year and a half there before moving on to Ephesus. But there's been a wee bit of disagreement since he left. And it happens. I mean, issues arise, questions on daily living get asked, and folks start to come to their own answers. And then they try to impress their ideas onto others. And so Paul's first letter wasn't enough to straighten things out, apparently. So he gets this letter back with all these questions and arguments pushing back on him and challenging his view. And Paul, as we read this, responds as though he views this letter as quite adversarial. So in the seventh chapter of the letter, he finally begins to address this letter that he's received. And boy, did these folks have questions for him. If my spouse isn't a Christian, should we stay together? They ask. Can widows remarry? Jesus and Paul were single. Is it more spiritual to be single rather than married? Do we need to break off our friendship with old friends who are not believers? Can women lead worship? What's the difference between our shared meals together and the ones we used to have in the temples? And then we come to chapter 8 with the burning question that we've all been waiting for the answer to. Can Christians in good conscience eat food sacrificed to idols? Okay, well, it's probably not high up on your list of pressing questions, but it would have been an important one for those living in a culture saturated with such religious observances, meat was regularly offered up in the temples, and then it was put on sale in the marketplace and at corner restaurants. And so before they joined the Christian community, eating food sacrificed in the temples would have been a normal practice. Most of them probably still had family and friends who regularly ate food from the temples. And for some of those new Christians, that may have once been a very meaningful religious practice. And for others, not so much. But the question they're raising to Paul is, is such food tainted? Most likely, many Corinthians couldn't afford meat regularly. They may have been vegetarian by economic necessity, but at a big city festival, honoring one of the gods or the goddesses, when the meat was free for everyone, couldn't they enjoy just a little taste? From reading Paul's response, it seems the question raised to him include the following justification for this position. We know there's only one God, and we know that idols are human creations and idols are nothing. So we know the whole process doesn't really affect the meat at all, so it's no big deal. It's not a tough question, after all, next. Except Paul, being the good apostle that he was, he recognizes that there's more to this problem than meets the eye that beneath the surface, there's a greater tension that's revealed in their language. You see, there is this underlying issue in Corinth of folks elevating their own importance or their own spirituality above others. And here it's showing up again, because some were claiming their superior knowledge they had been educated properly. They were in the know, and thus they were free to buy and eat this meat. And now they were using that knowledge to separate themselves from others in the community, driving a wedge between themselves and those who weren't so sure, those who out of an abundance of caution stayed away from such food. The problem wasn't the food sacrifice to idols rather the problem it seems was that these educated ones were belittling those who refused to buy the meat and ridiculing them because of their lack of knowledge you and I know that this is an unhealthy situation for a congregation indeed for any group but especially for a church Those claiming to be especially spiritual were threatening the cohesiveness of the entire congregation with their own emphasis on their own personal spiritual prowess, and by extension, the clear deficiencies of the others in their community. So Paul takes this question seriously, and he begins by agreeing with their statement. All of us possess knowledge, that's true. He says, yes, we all know things. Literally in the Greek, he says, we know that we know. But then he stops. And he doesn't follow through on their line of argument. Instead, he pauses to say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, puffs up is the usual translation. But the Greek word has this connotation of inflating or blowing out Think of a bladder and a fireplace bellows or a blast of wind. So one could make the argument that Paul is saying not just knowledge puffs up, but knowledge is um, full of wind, that knowledge breaks wind, that knowledge is just a bunch of gas. Uh, and then we got a question, where is Paul going with all of this, right? But in comparison to knowledge, Paul says love builds up the greek word is oikodomio. love builds a house and it's here that paul pushes back anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge in other words just when you think you know what you know you don't know in the way you need to know In Paul's way of thinking, it's the starting point of knowledge, of their knowledge, that's the problem. This knowledge the folks in Corinth are claiming to have starts with them. But love is grounded not in the self, but in the other, in relationship. And then Paul zooms into his primary point. Anyone who loves God is known by God. All of that theological knowledge they might have is just hot air if it is not grounded in the love of God. And it's that love of God that's the key. Loving God means loving neighbor, which means loving self. Paul doesn't quote Jesus here, but he pulls the Corinthians into the Shema, that great Hebrew commandment, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The knowledge that the group had about food sacrificed to idols wasn't faulty. Paul agrees with them. They've got all the theological logic right It's that relational piece that they've forgotten. And in their zeal to be right, in their reliance on right thinking, in their pride in their own theological acumen, they had forgotten. They had forgotten that they had all been baptized into Christ, that they were all part of one body, And Paul goes on to argue that their freedom should not be a stumbling block to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he enthusiastically says that if food would cause them to lose faith, then he's never going to eat meat again, so that not one of them would fall away. Now, this passage has been used throughout church history whenever conflicts arise, and it's usually brought up by the group that doesn't want the conflict to get out of hand. When faced with a difficult challenge, one, might, that, one, one that might want to divide a congregation, we sometimes hear people say, well, we, we shouldn't take a stance on that. We wouldn't want to offend anyone. We don't want to make anybody mad. They might leave the church. And disciples are particularly susceptible to this with unity as our polar star. But it's helpful to remember Paul is writing this letter for a particular congregation at a particular time with an ongoing correspondence and in a very particular situation. And if we're honest, Paul, in other places and in other writings, has no problem whatsoever taking a theological stance. He has no qualms about pointing out deficiencies in others' positions. He does it all the time. All the time. So this isn't about Christians not offending someone's sensibilities in the service of this ideal, thin understanding of Christian unity. Paul wants the folks in Corinth to stop dividing themselves by knowledge and instead work on building up one another in love. Because if this were a teaching about not giving offense to one another, the church would never have taken a position against slavery. And thank God, some did. Although, if we were honest, most American denominations and our very own Christian church tradition did use this passage as an excuse not to stand up against slavery. As a call for unity. A call for unity that's been a playing card to keep white Americans together and to ignore our own systemic racism. Racism. If this call to unity is understood as, let's not rock the boat, then a church would have never taken a stand on civil rights and taken a call for racial justice. You see, the church has always had controversy and disagreements. We've had heated debates over baptism, over how we celebrate communion, over the leadership of women in the church, over the full inclusion of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Paul is not telling that fledgling church in Corinth to remain stuck in the status quo because of some unwillingness to offend someone. We cannot hide behind calls for unity when the issues of justice remain in the forefront of our common life together, or we will never be a church that is truly living out its calling in a divided world. Paul's caution is not to never take a theological stance, but it's rather to enter into conversations with an ethic of love, not with the goal of dominance which is hard, I admit, because it's much more satisfying to win an argument than to listen to someone with whom we disagree. Scoring points against one another or just feeling satisfied that we are on the right side, that we've got the knowledge that other people lack, those are immediately gratifying. But they do not build up. Remember, all along, Paul agrees with their view. There's nothing wrong in his mind about eating food sacrificed to idols. Their theological reasoning, it's sound. But Paul sees beyond their theological positioning and recognizes that their hearts are far from God's. Because one can possess knowledge, one can pronounce theological truth claims, one can even hold the correct theological position, but if there is not love at the core of our relationships, then it's just passing gas. And that's Paul's words, not mine. Perhaps our modern problems are more pronounced than the church in Corinth because they were at least still worshiping together, even as their communion practices were fraying from that unity. And we now live in a world in which theological bubbles keep us apart and political divisions are stark. I spent much of my study time this week trying to find examples, contemporary examples of relationships stretching across such divides, and it's hard right now. I remember the wonderful book, The Meaning of Jesus, which was written by Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright. Now, Borg was a strong voice in the progressive Christianity movement, and Wright is and remains an evangelical icon. But the two remained friends, and they wrote this book together as a true conversation, as each one not only lays out their own theological position, but carefully listens to the other's point of view. And they don't necessarily agree. But that book came out in 1999, and that seems like a lifetime ago. In 2014, the New York Times ran an article about an unlikely friendship between two Anglican ministers. Tori Bakum was a leader of a church which led the split with the Episcopal Church over the election of Gene Robinson as an openly gay bishop. And Shannon Johnston was the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese in Virginia. And the diocese and Bakum's church were in the midst of this really bitter legal dispute over who owned that church's property once they were splitting off. One day, Bakum reached out to Johnston, and the two slowly and gingerly started to form a friendship, despite their widely different views and beliefs. Bakum said in the New York Times article, quote, peacemaking doesn't necessarily mean agreement. But what it does mean is that you stop trying to hurt each other. Or as Bishop Johnston likes to put it, quote, agreement is overrated. Learn to disagree well. The relationship between the two men has taken twists and turns, including Bacham leaving his breakaway Anglican church to become a Catholic in 2019. And in that same year, the two of them led a group of 30 Northern Virginian Anglicans and Episcopalians on a pilgrimage, on a pilgrimage to Northern Ireland to learn from leaders there who had worked on reconciliation between Irish Protestants and Catholics. And they heard stories of how that reconciliation was built. And now the two work together at the Program on Spiritual Peace Building at the Center for World Religions Diplomacy and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. To be honest, it's much easier to find stories of the church's brokenness, of all the finger pointing and the name calling. But God calls us to not stand back confident in our own rightness, in our own claims to knowledge. God calls us to figure out how to, quote, disagree well. Today is the birthday of Thomas Merton, the 20th century Trappist monk from the Abbey of Gethsemane, and he wrote, my dear brothers, we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are. Paul knows full well that knowledge doesn't change people. And we know that too in our day. Facts, logic, logical argumentation, it doesn't seem to make a difference in changing people's beliefs. Relationships change people. And that's hard. And it's not gonna happen in the comments on a Facebook post. And it won't occur without intentionality. And for those of us with privilege, those of us who have benefited from the way things have always been, it's even more important that we're the ones who initiate points of reconciliation because we need to be working at getting our own houses in order. In just a few more chapters of this same letter, Paul will make his most eloquent statement on the power of love. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This week I read an essay by a man whose father had served as an interim minister at a church in Austin, Texas, called Bicota Baptist Church. Bicota, it's an odd sounding name and the man had always assumed it was a name for a person or maybe a neighborhood that the church took on in its own name. But it turns out that Bicota is a mnemonic device for remembering the words of Ephesians 4, verse 32 which encourages the church to be ye kind to one another, by coda. We all would do well to remember that we are not called to knowledge, but to be kind to one another, to love. And when in the pursuit of knowledge and the sureness of our convictions, we lose sight of love, we lose our way. So let's be true to the calling of God. Let's speak out about injustice. Let's choose to live out God's radical hospitality. And as we do, may we always be kind. It's a start, and it's the only way out. And in this moment, let our prayer be with the great hymn of Harry Emerson Fosdick God of Grace. And God of glory, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour, for the living of these days. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.